gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. listeners this is jonah goldberg host of the remnant podcast brought to you by the dispatch and dispatch media come to the dispatch.com to check out all of our wonderful wares uh uh become a paid member uh to help us conquer the universe and peacefully and through the expansion of trade and commerce no no uh no need for space lasers at as of this time and one of the things that you can get when you become a member of the dispatch is you can get the full menu of capital. There's a pun in there. Capitalist newsletters from uh, our very own Scott Lincecum, who is back on the podcast. He is very close to the five time gold jacket. Um, and uh, he has a big new paper out at Cato about manufacturing, which we're going to get to in a second. Um, but first, uh, let's just start in the beginning with the guy who had 10 charts to ask his wife to marry him. Scott, welcome yes. back to The Remnant. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, it's great to be back. I am really excited uh, that I'm approaching the Five Timers Club. Um, I do, however, fear that the kids out there, you Zennials, Millennials, and the rest, don't know about the Five Timers Club on Saturday Night Live. And that skit, I mean, it's very much dating us, Jonah, that we we continue to make this this joke that I don't think, you know, much of your audience even gets. Well, the show is called The Remnant for a reason. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Actually, wait, <laughs> Caleb, Caleb's just telling us this is my fifth time. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Now, now normally we would have like the balloons drop and the confetti. Yeah. But uh, congratulations. Maybe we'll, we'll dub in some nice audio cheering and. I uh, hope so. Well, so thank maybe some you. Thank ritual you. human sacrifice. Or, I did um, not prepare a speech, um, <laughs> but I guess our chat will suffice. So, um, as America's perhaps foremost neoliberal shill, um, why don't we start with some? Let's just get the rank punditry out of the way before we get into the the sure. the, the intense thumbsuckery. Uh, how goes the first two weeks, or give a, give or take, of the Biden administration in your eyes? Uh, well, I could say it's been uh, unsurprisingly disappointing, um, which is, I guess, good in the sense that- Disappointing look, within normal parameters, right? Correct, which is exactly. kind of what we were looking for. It, yeah. I mean, look, uh, there is little chance that I, a rabid free market libertarian type, is going to, uh, that I'm going to be cheering- all of the kind of executive orders and and uh, the policy proposals and the rest. But in general, um, look, it's been basically what we've expected. Um, and honestly, it's a little too early to say too much about what they're planning. I mean, particularly on like trade stuff, for example, um, they, they seem to be, you know, there's some Buy American stuff, which is junk. But at the same time, I mean, look, it's two weeks in. You got to give them some time to get settled and, and get that through. Uh, I've been pleasantly surprised with most of the uh, cabinet and sub-cabinet positions, uh, particularly, you know, Yellen at Treasury and some of her lieutenants and then Blinken at State and others. I mean, these folks are, look, again, I'm not going to agree with them on everything, but they're, they're, uh, they're solid uh, they're solid choices. Um, they're nothing too kind of crazy left wing or 
um, you know, things that I, I really need to worry about. So that's, that's been all good. I think the one area that I've been disappointed, uh, truly is in the structure of the Biden COVID, uh, package, relief package, um, seeing some of the non-pandemic related kind of uh, a Christmas tree of uh, left progressive aspirations, some of that stuff um, I have have not been thrilled with. I mean, the big one, I think, being the minimum wage, that's actually going to be my newsletter for this week. We're going to look at uh, the proposal to jack up the minimum wage to $15 an hour um, in the next four years. Um, so that, that strikes me as, um, just a really, not just a bad economic proposal, but a bad political move. I mean, it's, it has very little to do with the pandemic. Um, so that kind of stuff. And then I think the other one outside of the COVID package, uh, I was the, uh, oil and gas stuff, um, not really canceling Keystone, which always gets all the press. Um, but some of the stuff about, um, maybe not renewing oil and gas permits on federal lands that strikes me as a pretty bad thing for investment. And, you know, um, just kind of pulling out the rug out of, uh, from under folks that, that have already, are already there. They already have wells in the ground. So that kind of stuff was, was, I'd say more disappointing than, than kind of what I was expecting. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, I know what you mean when you say not really the Keystone thing, because yeah. the Keystone thing was always in a stupid culture war kind of way overblown yeah but at the same time once we approved it and our allies to the north the canadians which is a sentence i don't often say um uh you know investors made plans around it and all that and it seems to me like pulling the plug on something like keystone the the moral hazard issues yeah. about that are much more real than the actual economic loss, even though, and also the political moral hazard, if you're the Democrats and you're trying to hold on to blue collar working class people, cavalierly yeah. killing that project, which they believe is a real symbol, symbolic thing too. I mean, so I think the politics of it were very bad yeah. and the broader kind of market signal that it sent was very bad as well. I mean, like, imagine you're the Canadians. You may say, what the hell, you know? Right. And I think, I think there's, uh, you're, you, you definitely hit on the, I think the moral hazard part is, is very legit, right? That um, the last thing we need to be doing after four years of policy by tweet is further undermining um, the United States' attractiveness for uh, foreign investment, right? right? And if you're a foreign investor and you're, you're looking at the United States and you think, well, geez, any kind of major infrastructure or construction project that's going to take years to do and might be in a controversial area, whether it's energy or whatever, um, well, gee, maybe I I don't want to don't want to do that. Um, so yeah, I think that's valid. I was I was thinking more on kind of the technical nerd level that I mean the the, the reality is that Keystone has become um, much less significant. Uh, in the last 10 years or so, because quite frankly, we produce, we have oil coming out of our ears. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Canadians, uh, the stuff they make is kind of cost, is more expensive and dirtier. And, you know, it's just not as big a deal anymore. But I do think you're right that in terms of uh, quashing investment um, or creating a climate of uncertainty, that's that ain't good. So I, yeah. yeah. Fair. And so speaking of the climate of an uncertainty, um, you know, this podcast will come out after your newsletter if you file yeah. on time. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but um, on the minimum wage thing, I mean, it, it seems to me like, first of all, raising the minimum wage at a time when every restaurant, where the story has been every restaurant in the country is struggling yeah. to, to keep their, their skeleton crews you know, employed strikes me as nuts. And, and as you were saying in the, before we started recording, you know, the fact that they're going to face, they're saying we're going to phase it in over five years proves that they understand that that's a bad impact, right? I mean, you yeah. can't have it both ways. Right. And, and so I, the, there's two things that are pretty galling about this. Um, the, the first is that, um, the new line in media and kind of among left of center wonks and even economists is that the minimum wage is a free lunch. There are, there are, it is a costless policy, which of course, uh, and I quote Thomas Sowell in my, uh, in, in, in my newsletter, um, you know, there is no, you know, there is no free lunch. There, there are only trade-offs. And the reality is, look, if you actually look at the economic literature, there was a new paper out last week that kind of summarized it all. And the fact is that that minimum wage hikes still do have negative effects. They just might not actually cause disemployment, so people losing jobs, but they can do all these other things, and none of which are good for small businesses, for workers, and the rest. Um, so, uh, like you said, the, the and that gets to kind of the second thing is that um, oh, and I, like you said, there's kind of a tacit admission here, right? That uh, by phasing it in, uh, they they are really admitting that this whole it's a free lunch thing is is garbage. Um, but the other thing that they don't mention is that even the immediate wage hike, because it would uh, immediately raise wages above the minimum wages in a, a handful, at least a dozen. It's probably, I, you know, it's like 15 or so states. So you're going to have immediate effects for, for a bunch of states. Um, you're going to have all significant effects in a couple of years. Um, but like you said, to do this in the middle of a pandemic, the pandemic that has disproportionately affected low-wage workers in service industries that's the very people that, to the extent minimum wages do have costs, and we still believe they do, uh, those are the people affected. Um, it makes it just makes no sense um, because that's the that's the, where the most suffering is. If you look at the the structure of the long term unemployed, it is all kind of low wage, low skill, uh, hospital leisure and hospitality workers, and restaurant fast food workers, that kind of thing. Because those, of course, are the places that were. Uh, the, the hardest hit. The other area that's been hard hit are small businesses. And we know again from the literature that um, minimum wage hikes, uh, they really don't hurt the big guys like Amazon. That's why Amazon's out there lobbying for it. Big full page ad in the Washington Post in favor of the $15 minimum wage because they already pay it. It's going to hit Amazon's competitors, smaller guys. And look, I love Amazon. I'm a big fan of big business and multinationals. I just don't want them to have an, uh, a artificial leg up. And, and that's what, uh, particularly right now, uh, a, a wage hike would do. Yeah. I mean, just, I've never really understood the, I mean, like, I, you know, this literature better than I do, but I, every now and then I dip into it and I'm like, yeah. you know, what, where's the argument? And 
you know, you look at like that, the, what was the, was it the, the SeaTac experiment, you know, out there and, and yeah, I, I get that if you have, if you have a robust economy and uh, a minimum wage might feel, it might get dissolved into the, the larger macroeconomic scene and not yeah. have the negative effects that some of my kind of people talk about, but just as, as an argument from just logic, if the federal government or any government said, okay, we're going to tax you $5 for every, on every, an hour for every employee you hire, you would obviously, well, that's going to be a disincentive for hiring people. But somehow, because instead of giving the $5 to the federal <laughs> government, you're giving it to the worker, all of a sudden it's like, no, there's, it's win-win. And then yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't get how they can get over that leap. And then the other point, sort of what you were talking about, and this will get, maybe get us into the manufacturing stuff. If, if my goal, like say I was some sort of sunny bunch supervillain, right? <laughs> and my goal was to replace all low income people with iPads and robots. Yeah. How would I do it? Well, one thing I would do is I would announce a phased in mandatory increase in the minimum wage right. that fully kicks in in five years that lets people plan and write off um, and amortize the expense of investing in yeah. non-human labor, right? I mean, right. I, I, what am I missing? No, no, you're right. And in fact, uh, the, the tax uh, law, the TCJA from a couple of years ago, actually uh, provides even more incentive for capital investment and that kind of, uh, because they uh, there's a, what we call full expensing, very, very nerdy stuff. But let's just say they're encouraging um, uh, capital spending. And so, right. So if you are in an industry that is, let's say, because, you know, manufacturing wages in certain industries, uh, we all think of manufacturing wages as being uh, great, right? Mm -hmm. That all, you know, everybody's making 30 bucks an hour at the, as part of the UAW. That's not true. I mean, there are actually several manufacturing industries and particularly in lower wage states, Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina, wherever, um, that the manufacturing wages are are lower than fifteen dollars an hour, um, and they're you know thirteen, fourteen bucks an hour, give or take. So if yeah, if you're a manufacturer, for example, um, you're just gonna you're gonna say, well, to heck with that, I I can invest in in robots or whatever technology and and save myself the headache. Um, and then, of course, there's all sorts of examples in the service industry, whether you're moving to, you know, touchscreen kiosks, that kind of thing. Um, and that, again, gets kind of the point of the newsletter is that we the minimum wage debate is so ridiculous. It has become kind of, you know, the classic uh, talking heads screaming at each other thing um, where one side says it's going to destroy a billion jobs. The other side says it's not going to do anything. And, and then, you know, viewers are left to kind of shrug and, and decide mm -hmm. whatever pre-existing bias they had, and that's what they'll do. But instead, the economists say, look, there are all of these channels through which minimum wage hikes can work, not just jobs, but they can, you know, uh, hit people's hours. So you just work a few fewer hours, right. or you lose fringe benefits, you lose just random perks, you know, maybe you used to get three coffee breaks a day, and now you only get two. Uh, maybe your boss is just hanging over your head at all times, and you're you're more it's just work is kind of more miserable. There's actually evidence of that as well. Um, and then let's say that that uh, employers don't have don't do anything with respect to the workers. They instead, uh, like you said, adopt automation or they just pass on 
all of their additional costs to consumers. Well, again, um, that's not good because everybody is a consumer, but it's particularly not good because, again, the industries that tend to be um, low-wage industries are those that are actually tend to serve low-income populations. Right. So, for example, there's a great paper that came out just, just a, a few weeks ago that found that 100% of minimum wage increases at McDonald's were passed through into the price of Big Macs and other food, right? Well, guess who eats a lot of Big Macs? Um, low-income individuals. Mm -hmm. So these economists, it's pretty cool. They said, well, so actually the wage gains that that uh, low-income workers receive, the nominal wage gains, so what it shows on their paycheck, is actually uh, much less than in, term, in real terms because they're now paying more for, for stuff, for, for basic necessities. So, so yeah, there's, and that again gets back to um, how these channels operate in the real world. Um, and it seems again, just uh, a crazy idea to be doing this in the middle of um, a, well, at the end of a major recession that disproportionately harmed the very industries that would probably take it on the chin via a, a minimum wage hike. Yeah, I, I feel bad that people don't know that this is that we're just doing this audio, but we can see each other. And as you're going through this, you literally have one chart after another that you're just going through. Right, um, right. Which which was a little awkward for me because it was like then I feel rude not like staring at the screen looking at your charts. But it's okay. So um, that's somewhere in there was a good segue into actually why we had you on here, which is to talk about the uh, your. Uh, big new Cato paper on yep. um, the manufacturing crisis and right. how it's real and alleged um, yep. or manufactured and alleged, whatever. Um, so what is, um, what is the state of U.S. manufacturing and why shouldn't we go all uh, nationalist in, in right. protecting our, our vital, vital bodily fluids or industries <laughs> or whatever? Right. So the, the, the paper came about, um, I, I started kind of sketching this out actually before I joined Cato full time back when I was uh, a lawyer. And the reason I, I, I started the paper is because I was really frustrated with what had become an extremely common narrative um, that was just not present in the data that essentially was this. The narrative was, and this was in the context of US-China trade stuff, and, and that, um, that decades of free market fundamentalism, and of course, globalization, globalism, um, and a lack of government support for, uh, the, for industry has led to massive and widespread deindustrialization that has left us utterly dependent on foreign countries for everything we, every good we, we uh, see in, not just in our stores, but in general, manufactured goods. And then the pandemic hit and this narrative uh, morphed a bit. It then became all about medical goods, but it was the same thing that um, because our, our drugstore shelves were empty, because there were shortages of PPE, um, that proved that the, uh, this that we have been weakened as a country. Our national security had been weakened by decades of deindustrialization. So uh, the paper is essentially a, a rebuttal um, 
to that narrative. And, and, and it it's, goes in several directions, but the most obvious, I think the most ingestible part is that if you look at the data from the U.S. government, um, Bureau, Economic of Ana- Bureau of Economic Analysis, will be BEA, um, and you look at manufacturing output, um, what you see is that manufacturing output is at uh, all-time highs in real inflation-adjusted terms. Um, that the only areas in which there is a clear, at the kind of broadest macro level, the only areas where there is any evidence of a long-term, quote-unquote, deindustrialization relates to manufacturing jobs and to um, manufacturing share of the economy. Um, so, I mean, share of GDP. So, but the, again, when you actually then, though, look at why this is happening and where this is happening, these trends, you realize that these trends are not indicative at all of the nation's industrial capacity. So our ability to make stuff in a pandemic or during a war or national emergency, that instead these trends are kind of just, they're going on everywhere. Um, in developed countries and even in a lot of developing countries. Um, and that um, there's some great charts in there. Uh, I know you love charts. So um, <laughs> I really actually, I will give a shout out to the Cato uh, publications team because there are all these very cool interactive charts. You can roll your mouse over there. You can look at different countries. You can click on different industries and it shows you all of this really cool stuff. So yeah, if no, you I, was are playing chart- with it. I was playing with it this morning, you know, doing my homework and it's it's very very elegantly done. It's nice yeah, it's really neat stuff. I mean, if you if you are a data nerd at all, um, you will really enjoy just clicking through some of this stuff. Because again, what what so when you see the countries, you realize that everybody's losing manufacturing jobs for the most part, just at different levels. They started at different levels. Um, everybody's uh, manufacturing sectors are getting smaller as a share of their economy. And that's not a bad thing. It's actually because we're just consuming more services. In fact, Americans um, have been just devoting more of their budgets to services since like the 1950s. Um, and you think about it actually during the pandemic, that's totally reversed because we're all trapped at home. So we can't travel. We can't go to bars and restaurants. We can't do all those things we we do with our, our disposable income. So what do we do? We start buying goods again. So all of a sudden, the manufacturing sector is growing compared to the services sector. But this is, again, these are just broad-based macroeconomic things that are going on. This has nothing to do with deindustrialization. So again, when you actually dig into the numbers and you look at industrial capacity, our ability to make stuff, um, we're doing fine. Um, uh, even when you drill into the numbers, you see that um, the things we care the most about, so what we call durable goods, and then certain non-durable goods like pharmaceuticals, chemicals, energy, and the rest, outputs way up, man. We're just doing it with fewer workers, and we're shedding a lot of the kind of low-wage, low-productivity, um, kind of low-skill industries um, in manufacturing. And that that kind of makes the data look worse than they really are. Because, for example, uh, tobacco manufacturing has collapsed. Big surprise. Um, textiles and apparel, again, now that's mainly a globalization thing, although our textile industry is still pretty big. Um, and then you look at some of these other, what are called dematerialized industries, um, and industry, just things that we don't use as much anymore, paper, optical media, like, uh, CDs and tapes. Um, and that for the most part, and it's not a hundred percent, but for the most part, the industries that have collapsed in the United States, 
over the last 20 plus years are those that are just these kind of junky industries that that either we don't need anymore or that um, are low wage, low skill, low paying. You know, we just talked about um, wages. Well, you know, textiles and apparel um, are some of the lowest paying manufacturing jobs out there. Um, and, you know, yes, we have uh, lost a bunch of those, but overall the industry is um, doing pretty well. Yeah. The, I mean, the dematerialization, I've wanted to do a podcast on this dematerialization thing yeah. for a while because I think it's just fascinating. And this, the, 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 the data is starting to show that like we're like legit just using less physical yeah. material stuff, even as the economy expands, which is an amazing story. Um, and I, someone, maybe it was Alex Tabarak or, or, or one of those guys, but someone who was saying, re, pointed out recently on Twitter that if you think about how, like when we were kids, you still used film cameras. Right. And it cost, say it cost a quarter per picture to get a roll of film developed. That paper, those chemicals, yep. all of that stuff were counted in the GDP. And now because we do it with ones and zeros on our phones, that it, it's actually made us richer. Yeah. But it's not captured in the GDP in ways that are recognizable the, the way it was when we did a physical processing thing. And, the, yeah. and anyway, just, I think it's an interesting way to think about it. But so it, tell me if I'm wrong here. I mean, so is it analogous to agriculture, right? On the yes. one hand, we the share of people in the United States who are directly working in agriculture, not food services, is like one or two percent, sure. right? Yeah. But we actually produce more agriculture than we ever have in American history by far. Right. Um, it's similar with manufacturing. This is like we're still manufacturing stuff. It's just instead of people leaving the farm, they're leaving the factories. Is that yeah. basically yeah, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And and the so again, if if you go to the paper, these guys uh, a couple of years ago, some economists, they looked at uh, uh, sixty different countries representing the vast majority of global GDP, and they plotted what their what the employment in manufacturing, in agriculture, in services. They also plotted what kind of the ratio of manufacturing to services over this period in terms of output and uh, in terms of GDP share, excuse me. And they all do the exact same thing. Uh, again, you know, there's some variation um, in there, but the trends are are very clear. And and so again, that gets back to um, when you when you hear the nationalist argument that we don't make anything. Anymore, they're always talking about jobs and GDP share. And again, those just don't really tell us much. And, you know, you talked about, um, you know, dematerialization. I think it's really important that it's not just about, I mean, it is important that, you know, cell phone again replaces or smartphone replaces all these things. But the other thing is that even the things we still use, whether it's a smartphone or a television or the rest, they're getting lighter and thinner. And, and that's, again, using fewer resources. So the, the guy who's kind of the guru on this is Andrew McAfee. He wrote this great book called More From Less. Um, he plots all these different basic materials, wood, cement, metals, you name it. Um, and then even getting into energy products as well. And he's showing this for a lot, for not just the United States, but for most developed countries, the just the, the amount of stuff in these basic materials we're using these days has after decades and decades of going up. So as you get richer, you can consume more of this stuff has flatlined or started going down. 
Um, and then other uh, groups, like I think it's the OECD as well, has uh, other stats on this, on what they call material consumption. And it's just amazing. We've just kind of stopped consuming as much. Well, that gets back to manufacturing. If you're not consuming as much stuff, there's no reason that your manufacturing sector is right. going to just keep going up. And that's the other narrative that is really bizarre to me, is that there's this assumption that the United States manufacturing sector just has to keep expanding ad infinitum, right? Just going to, I don't know, we're going to maybe we're going to launch it into space at some point. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure. But again, so when you when you adjust for inflation, when you look at what the sector's doing, um, output still is up. It's up like 20, 30% over time. Durable goods is up more. Um, but that's there's just really nothing there to, to worry about. And then I dig into other important things like investment. Um, the United States is still a top uh, uh, destination for foreign investment. Manufacturers are still investing tons of money in research and development and capital expenditures and the rest. Um, their, their financial situation is still good in terms of income and all these things. So there's really not much at, at either the kind of top level or at kind of when you break into the numbers to get really worried. Um, that and the cool thing, and in fact, I have another smaller paper for Cato coming out probably in about a week, is that when you look at the pandemic stuff, right, again, as I mentioned, you know, so um, back in March, guys like Marco Rubio and President Trump and others said, oh my gosh, we don't make anything anymore. And this is a major national security crisis. Um, our, we, we don't have a large PPE industry, for example, because surgical masks, for example, are super cheap. Um, they, you know, they cost a couple pennies to make, uh, each and most of that got offshore. So that's a huge problem. But what these guys didn't really consider is that because we actually have a ton of industrial capacity still that our manufacturers and other companies and individuals would adjust. They would see this massive spike in demand and then start trying to serve that demand. And that's exactly right. what's happened across industries, whether it's cleaning supplies or N95 masks or ventilators and other medical goods or pharmaceuticals, um, demand skyrocketed. There was, of course, some shortages and some problems in the supply chains. But then all of a sudden, supply chains adjusted. And by late summer, we were cranking out this stuff, um, whether it was new market entrants or manufacturers adjusting. The International Trade Commission just did a big study of all of this and said, you know what, other than rubber gloves, which have a, a, a severe problem with raw materials, right? You need rubber, mm -hmm. natural rubber, um, which is mainly in like Malaysia. Um, they said, other than rubber gloves, things are pretty good out there um, that we did great uh, with pharmaceuticals and N95s, believe it or not, and medical supplies, ventilators, kind of that kind of medical goods. Um, that we, we've had more PPE come online. We're also, of course, importing a ton of it from those uh, darned foreigners, uh, including China, and that um, overall, the system worked pretty well. And it's that kind of flexibility, that kind of basic industrial capacity that is still quite present in the United States and has come in really, really handy um, uh, right now. Uh, First, uh, just a quick technical question. Um, um, and remember, there's no math on this podcast. Um, we, uh, in one of your previous 
of your five-time appearances on here, we used to talk about this quite a bit, about how Donald Trump and others would rail about, simultaneously rail about trade deficits. Yeah. And at the same time, brag about foreign investments in the United right. States, right? right? And as I think you were the one to explain it to me, you should think about it as when those dollars go abroad, think of them as Chuck E. Cheese tokens. You can only redeem them out of Chuck E. Cheese, right? So if you're sending right. dollars abroad, eventually they have to come back here. Is now, there a way to measure, though, how much of this, you were talking about how we're a foreign, we're attractive to foreign investment. How much of that is just because we've sent those dollars over there and they have to come back? And how much of it is because we're actually an attractive investment thing? I mean, is the, is the gap between the dollars we sent abroad and the total amount of foreign investment so great that it's clear that we're an attractive target? Well, Do you understand what I'm saying? I sort of, I mean, the, the, I think there's, there's certainly an issue with what foreigners are investing in when they come back to the United States, when that, when those dollars come back, mm -hmm. uh, for example, uh, there is certainly a lot of, uh, foreign purchases of us debt. So of treasuries and the rest, um, because us treasuries are considered to be a very, very safe asset. So times of turmoil and the rest, um, that uh, that the people uh, flock to safe investments and treasuries are one of them. So, and then of course, certain countries can try to manipulate their currencies a bit by buying uh, American uh, treasuries as well. That's certainly happens, but um, it's also undeniable that in terms of being a destination for foreign investment. The United States in normal times is number one in the world. Um, you know, we always think about, oh, all these, uh, all this money's going to China. China's winning. Well, until last year, the United States was always, um, by large margins, the number one investment. China only became number one last year, and that was because of COVID. Um, that was, and it's very likely going to reverse uh, this year. Um, and that that foreign investment is, uh, I think, when you again, when you compare it to why would COVID drive people to invest in China because they want well, better bat meat? <laughs> well, two reasons. One, because China's economy uh, is was growing uh, while ours was still stuck. So um, whether we like it or not, the Chinese had have handled COVID better in terms of getting their economy up and running again. Um, and because of that, um, that allows for, uh, so, you know, investors are going to go where there's growth, um, either to service the Chinese market or to, to have a export hub for, for, uh, you know, for uh, servicing abro abroad. Um, and because the United States economy was contracting so severely, nobody was really psyched to be investing here at the time. Mm -hmm. um, now, again, that's probably going to reverse um, in terms of, I mean, because the United States drop in, in investment was massive. I mean, it was like a 40-something percent decline. Um, and that's just not natural. So to the extent our economy gets up and running again, um, to the extent that, uh, you know, these vaccines kick in, uh, we, we, should be, we should be fine. Um, in the long term. But look, the, there's a kind of a misunderstanding about why multinationals invest in certain places. I mean, the common 
narrative from politicians and nationalists is that all this outsourcing. So when Ford builds a plant in China, for example, that's to ship goods back to us, right? They're gonna, we're going to all be buying Chinese-made Mustangs. The reality is that multinationals tend to invest where there is growth to service the growing domestic market. Mm-hmm. So GM builds a lot of cars in China. They do that to sell to Chinese people, not, not really much coming back to the United States. You know, there's some Buicks and some other things that do, but not much. Um, and that, so that's just when you, we ask, why did China get so much investment? Well, because again, their economy is growing. They also, of course, have a, a growing consumer base um, and a, a billion people. So they're going to be an attractive investment right. de- destination, whether we like it or not. Um, so where, given your, you know, well-established globalist priors and your dogmatic, closed-minded libertarianism, um, where are the places that you are willing to seed, concede, a certain amount of merit to the, the, I mean, I know you say that there is, as Adam Smith acknowledged, there is a, at least in theory, a yeah. national security argument for some kind of protectionism right. in specific circumstances at specific times and yada, 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 yada. Right. Um, where do you think the Marco Rubios or Josh Hawley's have the best argument on their side or the, the place where you at least can engage and concede that they have a point, at least in theory or in practice. Yeah. So I think that there's there's two areas that that the the nationalist side has a point, um, even even though I disagree with their solutions. So I think first is that there's a clear area in terms of real t- direct national defense, right? Mm-hmm. So um, tanks, planes, all that kind of stuff. You actually need to fight a war. Okay, so in in that sense, and you want to have uh, that industrial capacity and capability in peacetime too. So I think there's a legitimate argument for maintaining um, that type of industrial capacity. Um, the the other area is in terms of diversity of supply. I think that the nationalists, you want to call it, or I call them the resiliency folks, because that's how their their new term, mm-hmm. um, have a point when they say, or they claim 90% of our drugs come from China. Okay. Well, if that were true, I think that would be a, a legitimate issue. The, the, but then that, so, so, you know, for so where you have a really sole supplier situation, United States doesn't make it ourselves, and uh, it's all coming from one country, and not just China, but any single source. Okay, mm-hmm. so that that creates some concerns because, again, in times of not just war but pandemic or whatever, um, that that can create obviously some some problems um, and and problems that that are I think there there could be a role for government there. The 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 problem with those two arguments is that the the reality is and the applicability is much narrower than what the nationalists claim, and of course it's exaggerated and and it's really made just it's it's almost unrecognizable from what I just said. 
So going back to the national defense point, for example, well, we were told that steel must be protected um, because of national security, right? Trump's tariffs on steel and aluminum too were because of national security. Well, little known is that Secretary Mattis um, wrote a letter as he's required by law to the Department of Commerce that was running this big national security investigation and said, you know what? We don't need tariffs at all. I only, the Defense Department only needs 3% of total U.S. steel production, um, not even total capacity, production, actually in production, uh, to service, service our defense needs. In times of war, that might go up to 6%. So we're good. We're good. Mm-hmm. Um, that did, of course, his recommendations were totally ignored. And we ended up slapping tariffs on steel from Brazil and Europe and Japan to supposedly bolster a steel industry that had 70% domestic market share at the time those tariffs went into force. So it's a really good example of of why we need to be extremely skeptical, even in areas where we think there is a legitimate security nexus. So certain types of steel, perhaps, or again, tanks, planes, that kind of stuff. You need to be really skeptical of when these measures go into place because oftentimes they are corrupted to the point of being unrecognizable. So the the other area, though, is that um, these the nationalist side assumes that the only solution, whether it's to domestic production or a lack of diversity, the only solution is reshoring. We have to just bring all this manufacturing back. Well, this not only ignores that we still produce a lot of stuff, um, Pharmaceuticals is a great example. We have a massive pharmaceutical industry. Um, we still produce a bunch of generic drugs too. Yeah, what? What? Just because he said it's not true that ninety percent come from China. Yeah. What is what is the actual number? Well, we it's really hard to get exact figures. And in fact, part of the CARES Act from last year is to dig into the pharmaceutical supply chain to try to get a a, a firmer handle on it. But that said. The uh, the ITC, the International Trade Commission, did another uh, report that looked at uh, all these types of different drugs, and they found that there were only a, a small handful, like six out of several hundred drugs, for which China was the overwhelming import supplier. So nothing about domestic production. Mm-hmm. So nothing about U.S. production. But uh, say 85% or more of our imports were coming from China. So that is, uh, and, and none of these drugs were so essential that they couldn't, there couldn't be alternative drugs used or, um, uh, and, uh, or potential alternative suppliers. So uh, it looks like uh, that there still is some generic, uh, there are a few generic drugs out there that do uh, primarily in terms of import volumes come from China and India. Um, there are uh, some M- API, we call them, which are pharmaceutical inputs, but we don't know, we don't have uh, great data on that yet. The data we do have, again, don't show much of a risk beyond a couple very, very narrow and not essential drugs. Yeah, so what um, do you say, because I, I, I obviously, as much as I like to give you a hard time about being a globalist and a, and a, and a nacho truther. Um, I actually agree with you on most of this stuff, but what do you say about, um, like when you're talking about not having all your eggs in one basket and having only one supplier for a certain thing, 
totally with you. I agree. That's a bad idea, no matter who the supplier is. Yeah. But you could also make the case that China is just a worse supplier than the UK yeah. or Canada. It's sort of like it's roughly analogous to my issue about nuclear weapons. Yeah. It does not keep me awake at night, the thought of Canada having nuclear weapons. Because what I mean, what are they gonna do with nuclear weapons? You know, like they're, they're Canadians. But like Iran having nuclear weapons is a problem. China yeah. having influence over our supply chain is categorically different than the UK or even India um, or basically any EU country. And so right. like I hear from among my sort of quasi-globalist, you know, private sector friends, one of the yeah. things they say is they still believe in free trade. They still believe in, in, in global trade and all of these kinds of things and low tariffs and all that. But they still want to get their supply lines the hell yeah. out of China, yeah. right? Because there's a risk premium there. And who knows what our relations between these two countries are. You have no objection to that sort of thinking, right? No, and and that and so there's two things, uh, two responses to kind of the nationalist view that we have to, because of China's position in the supply chain, we have to reshore everything. So first is, like you said, private actors are already having kind of an oh moment, right? That, mm -hmm. hey, this was, this made some sense, but now with, especially with how hard China has turned in the last, say, decade. Um, and, and, you know, that's what I don't think people quite understand. I mean, the, the, the shift in China over the last five to eight years, give or take, has been really dramatic. Yeah. And that, you know, they did bad stuff before, but it was nothing like now. So the private Since 79, sector is, I mean, they did really bad stuff before Deng Xiaoping, right? Like killing yeah, yeah, 60 yeah. million but of you them. Get, yeah, you get what I mean. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I just mean that there was a period, you know, in the Zhurongi days and the right. rest, pre-Xi Jinping, um, that China was, it was kind of, they were doing bad stuff, but nothing that was just like, since the, you know, the early 90s, um, it, was, it was going okay. And then there has been a hard shift. And, and private businesses have, I think, very much realized that they need to be more diverse. And so there are already, whether it's reshoring to the United States or more likely reshoring to other developing countries, Vietnam being a great example, um, that private actors are already doing this. Um, and quite frankly, they were doing this before the US-China trade war, whether it was because of increased Chinese labor costs, whether you know that they just got sick of all the control over their investment and production and the rest, or, you know, um, they didn't want commies peering over the shoulder all the time. There was that was already going on. It's really accelerated um, in the last few years. So uh, private actors doing that good. Second is that the role for government here should be to really encourage diversity of, of suppliers. And the way that government can do this is through things like the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, right? Where we actually uh, have agreements with uh, more uh, closely aligned countries. They don't have to be allies. They just don't need to be China. Uh, again, like Vietnam or Malaysia or places in Europe. Eastern Europe, for example, is a pretty low uh, cost production area. These types of uh, agreements can facilitate not just trade in t-shirts, but trade in defense goods. So little known to most people is that we have this thing called the National Technology and Industrial Base, the NTIB. This was designed to expand the United States' global footprint for defense technology and production. 
Now, right now, uh, there are only a couple members, uh, Canada, the UK, and Australia, and the United States. And the idea is that we're going to all share, we're all close allies, we're going to share R&D, we're going to share industrial capacity, so that in times of war or other national emergency, we can help each other out. Now, um, an obvious thing to do in the defense context is to expand the NTIB to include other countries that are close allies with large industrial bases and flourishing R&D and innovative sectors, all that kind of good stuff. Um, and none of that involves reshoring supply chains or tariffs or economic nationalism. It's about kind of liberalizing with the good guys instead of trying to punish the bad guys. Because I mean, look, we've learned from the Trump years that it really doesn't, it just doesn't work very well to kind of just go out on your own and try to block trade with China. Um, and it's not going to lead to some sort of massive boost in domestic manufacturing. By contrast, um, we can do some stuff that can uh, encourage trade and investment with closer allies, and uh, and that's obviously a smart thing to do. Um, and of course, a lot less painful for uh, American consumers and businesses. Yeah, and the the thing I find sort of baffling about, I mean, other than the hypocrisy of a bunch of people who got elected as talking about free markets and capitalism. Yeah, and then yeah. the slightest breeze comes and all of a sudden they're like, I for one hail our new corporatist and overlords. Um, but is the, you know, the idea that somehow what America must do, the, one of the lessons it must take from the pandemic is we need to establish a thriving two cent face mask industry in this yeah. country, right? I mean, it's like, look, my wife, she thought ahead about the pandemic and ordered a vast stockpile of toilet paper. Yeah. But she messed up on the Clorox wipe. She should have, we should have had a hoard of those too. And she's very bitter about it. But like, we didn't say, oh my gosh, the pandemic is coming. There's going to be a rush on toilet paper. We need to get our own domestic paper mill on our property where we right. will make our own toilet paper, right? That's not the highest, best use of my time. Yeah, Some would well, disagree and, about that. But. Right. And so again, that, that it, and again, it ignores um, that manufacturers, that there is enough flexibility. The U.S. economy is dynamic enough that, look, if you, if you, if there's a spike in demand, you're going to have new entrants. So we met, we talked about that. But the other thing, like you said, it ignores the role of, uh, stockpiling and inventories in all of this. Um, you know, we have a national stockpile for a reason. Um, and that is to tide us over in times of national emergency to allow for things to adapt, for allow to things for things to get up and running. Um, and that stockpile was dramatically uh, undersupplied before the pandemic. Um, and it makes a ton of sense to spend two cents a mask uh, on to just fill massive warehouses full of, of masks or whatever than it does to establish giant factories in the United States making masks at 10 cents a mask, because that's, that's basically what they say they cost. Um, and in fact, the, the, the problems with doing this are, are already coming out. So we're already seeing um, an oversupply of ventilators. Remember, uh, in March, ventilators were the new hot thing. Trump right. said we were gonna, he was, he was going to become the king of ventilators. So we threw a bunch of government money at uh, 
ventilator producers. We forced certain manufacturers to make ventilators, uh, GM and Ford or GE. And um, now we have ventilators coming out of our ears. Um, we've already the filled the stock. Just by the way, the great thing about the GM made ones is they come with enough cup holders. Yes, um, it's, which, which is really nice. Yeah. 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 Um, and so we have ventilators in our stockpiles. They're overflowing. Uh, we're now just sending them to poor countries. We're just, mm -hmm. it's ventilator diplomacy now because we have all of this overproduction. Well, so well, it also turned out that, we, that, that the ventilators were killing people. Right. We didn't right, know. We problem. didn't know. And that gets right. kind of knowledge problem stuff. I mean, not to get all Hayekian on you, but it's That's always, always allowed here. It's always tough, if not impossible, to know what you're going to need. And typically, government is two steps behind the market. And whether it's the market in manufacturing or just research scientific community, the market. So now we have all these ventilators coming out of our ears. Sherrod Brown, senator from Ohio, just wrote this hilarious letter. Um, hat tip to Kevin Williamson, who, who uh, brought this to my attention. So Sherrod Brown wrote a letter to Biden saying that we needed all of these new Buy American rules because Ohio manufacturers, there's now a glut of all this stuff, all this PPE and stuff. There's all these Ohio, there's too many manufacturers we now have of all this stuff. So instead of the U.S. government saying, look, you know, you guys did us a solid, we're going to buy all your excess production while you down tool uh, and we're going to put it in our big stockpiles. Instead of doing that, no, what does Sherrod Brown want to do? Well, he wants to have a permanent, just massive oversupply of manufacturers in this space, making very expensive PPE on government contracts, right? As if that is a really productive use of our, our resources. And, and it just, that's why it makes a lot more sense to have policies that encourage flexibility, that encourage uh, economic dynamism, right? And there's certainly, you know, I write in my paper, there's certainly some things we could do to help. Um, for example, we could stop putting tariffs on industrial inputs like steel and aluminum that have, you know, been shown to hurt manufacturers. Um, we can do things to encourage, like I mentioned, full expensing uh, in terms of tax treatment of uh, capital investment. We we shouldn't be we should be allowing that to be written off more quickly and deductible. We should be encouraging high skill immigration um, because not only do manufacturers need smart immigrants, but we found that when they can't get access to smart immigrants, multinationals just leave and they go to countries like Canada or like China that are more welcoming to to these immigrants. So there are things we can do, but none of this is like just throwing billions of dollars at domestic manufacturers to produce 10 cent masks uh, in perpetuity. Um, that it's far better to uh, produce kind of to, to enact these kind of free market or stockpiling policies, that kind of stuff, um, uh, instead of the alternative. So let's talk a little bit about the COVID response. Yeah. You did a great newsletter a few months ago about the. Was, I don't know. If, honestly, I have no idea if it was months or hours ago. It's yeah, it's, I know. Time, it's, time runs together. It's actually like two months ago now. Yeah. Okay. Because I wrote a column about it where I just basically cribbed the whole thing, gave you credit because yeah. otherwise that would be wrong. And um, um, about how the pandemic response proves sort of the benefits of globalism um, in terms of all these different immigrants working at different places, doing yeah, yeah. things you know in permissionless ways and all that. I'm totally down with it. Um, but 
how frustrating is it for you? I mean, first of all, feel free to tell listeners, give some listeners examples of that. But yeah, it's sort of like how frustrating is it for you? Because you're 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 kind of like you know what's his what's his name Randy Quaid in in Independence Day, right? We're, yeah, where the aliens have probed you and you know they're out there and you're waiting to say I told you so for all this time. Mm -hmm. There's this bastiat on you know uh, unseen thing, right? Where yeah. the politicians are going to insist on taking credit for things they didn't do and they're going to do and the only way you can take credit for thing for things they didn't do is by claiming that the government did them when they did right yeah and that Ugh. is never going to go away and it it gets in the way of all of these wonderful benefits that are unseen that's the reference to Bastia for people who don't know there's this seen and unseen right right um and yet we it's all of our politics are about broken window fallacies and it's just, it, it, it seems like it's never going to go away. Right. How do you keep from cutting yourself? I mean, it just, it, it well, I have inferior. a wine cellar. I have a wine <laughs> cellar, um, that is stocked. Um, although that's, it, there's a lot of churn. There's a lot of dynamism in my, in my wine cellar. Well, you believe in stockpiling. Yes, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it is frustrating because so just to kind of give the the listeners that the twenty thousand feet overview, um, if you look at the last year of vaccine development and production, uh, and particularly the Pfizer BioNTech one, but also the Moderna vaccine as well, um, what you see over and over and over again are teams of immigrants and Americans working side by side in advance of any sort of government involvement um, and collaborating to produce at breakneck speed uh, these life-saving vaccines. Uh, and they're doing it via both existing production networks. So again, um, rebutting the idea that we don't make anything anymore. Pfizer's vaccine is getting cranked out in Kalamazoo, Michigan at a plant that was already there. Um, and they've, of course, ramped up uh, production lines using kind of global capital and the rest. But also, the uh, like you mentioned, permiss permissionless innovation and collaboration. Uh, Pfizer and BioNTech, the German company uh, founded by a Turkish immigrant and the daughter of another Turkish immigrant, uh, brilliant folks. Um, so they got together before, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. They had... Uh, BioNTech realized very early on that they needed a heavy hitter in terms of production and regulatory compliance, and they brought on Pfizer. They had had a pre-existing relationship because they were working on a flu vaccine before this. And um, in April, before Operation Warp Speed ever existed, uh, Pfizer's CEO, another immigrant, uh, predicted they would have millions of doses in uh, not just in production, but have them out in use by the end of 2020, and he nailed it. And all of this, again, happened uh, through uh, imports of goods and services, global access to global capital markets, immigrants, all the rest. So, so very much an awesome kind of story of globalization. Um, but you mentioned it's, it is extremely frustrating when a guy like Mike Pence gets up in front of a crowd and takes credit, and not just takes credit on behalf of the Trump administration, and of course, 
Pence had to praise President Trump in his because right. uh, apparently Broad he was leadership. right. I mean, he was he was working at the whiteboard to 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 get these supply chains <laughs> right. Obviously, um, well, when he had COVID, right, the many documents he was reviewing when he had COVID <laughs> were were clearly Pfizer supply chain plans. So, but so Pence not only praised Trump, but uh, Gave this all credit to America. This was American. And, you know, this type of stuff is frustrating because, look, I, I love American exceptionalism, whether it's, uh, you know, cheeseburgers and Van Halen or our uh, R&D capacity, you name it. Um, and But it is really essential to understand what makes America so great was not this kind of nationalist, jingoistic uh hundred uh, percent American thing. It was this open collaborative process that, of course, has a role for American scientists and production, but is reliant in a lot of ways and confidently reliant on uh, goods and services and knowledge from the rest of the world as well. Um, and that, I think, is a very American thing. But it is not American, quote unquote, in the political sense. And of course, Pence isn't alone. I mean, you you look a, a time and time again. Uh, politicians love to take credit. And they love to um, claim that it was their policies and, of course, their their people, um, their nation that that did all of this. When uh, there's you know there's a role, but it's certainly that that kind of credit's nonsense. Yeah. I mean, I, so I have this weird obsession. Remember Elizabeth Warren used to have this line and then Obama started to crib it of you didn't build that. Yeah. Right. right? And the whole argument from the uh, sort of the Warren Obama point of view is because the government paid for public education, the government paid for roads and safety and, and standards and all of these various things. Um, you didn't make, you didn't accomplish what you accomplished on your own. There's a certain, superficial truth to it to be right. sure because we live in a society and you know the fact that you keep the you know the zombie hordes away from killing me you get some credit for that, that that's yeah. all fine but it seems to me that there's something i wish more conservatives um understood which is there's a there's a free market version of you didn't build that which no. is that in a market society the it's the you know it's the it's the eye pencil point right it's like you didn't build that pencil on your own. Millions of people all around the globe did things that you had no knowledge of except for their end-stage product that you bought either as a commodity yeah. or as whatever that came to you. And all of this permissionless, invisible cooperation um, is a sort of free market version of the you didn't build that point. Yeah. Everyone, you know, it's, it's like I remember uh, this one stat that was in a book that – my friend Nick Schultz and Arnold Kling did, you know, 10 yeah. years ago. Great book. Was that simply by virtue of crossing the border, a Mexican laborer becomes something like four to six times more productive. And it's not because all of a sudden they get stronger, strong like bull by crossing the border. It's because there is so much built up intangible capital in our system that we get more out of human beings in our system than you do in less productive economies. And that's a you didn't build that thing too, but it's not an argument for government. It's an argument for all of these other parts of society working seamlessly together based upon their own interests for this greater productivity. And it's very yeah. difficult to explain that to people. 
Yeah, and and there's it, there's a I think uh, there is a role for government. Um, sure. In 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 protecting property rights and kind of creating a a a, 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 a system, kind of the rules of the road and that kind of thing right. of traffic cop stuff. Yeah. And um, of staying out of the way, you know, that's something I mentioned in the column is that, you know, you think about if we had had large artificial government barriers to the capital and knowledge and immigration and trade and the rest, these vaccines, well, maybe they could have been made, but it would have been a far more time consuming process. And of course, lives lost in the process. Um and and of course, you know, I think even libertarians can say that that there's a there's a at least arguably a role for government in doing things like funding basic science mm-hmm. um, and just kind of throwing money at research and research institutions. Not saying I need um, fifty pounds of steel, but just saying here, uh, you know, go be smart. That kind of stuff, right? right? And I and I do think that conservatives sometimes give, um, you know, whether it's a study on cow farts or whatever, um, conservatives are a bit too dismissive, um, or um, they can undermine that kind of basic role right. for for government. Um, the other thing that's really frustrating is that, um, on both sides of the aisle, we tend to denigrate consumer goods. Uh, again, cheap T-shirts, right? That's the or uh, iPhones, right? Never really considering that the exact same networks that allowed life these life-saving vaccines to be produced and distributed uh, right. via FedEx, DHL, UPS, and the rest, um, the, the, all of those logistics networks were developed to send us cheap T-shirts and iPhones and all of that stuff. And yeah, that, that's a really good point. You know, I mean, like those giant tanker cargo containers. One could be full of plastic dog crap and the other one could be full of vaccine and you, but the system was set up for the dog crap. And, yeah. And there's this, know. there's this great quote from this logistics guy. And I think it was in my newsletter. I'm pretty sure it was in the, that version. He said something like, this is going to require, the logistical effort will require essentially shipping every single iPhone ever made all at once or whatever. And the point, his point is that this is going to be a big job. But the other point is that we have these networks in place because we've been all buying iPhones and t-shirts and the rest, or because we've been going on vacations, all these kind of frivolous things that everybody looks down upon. Well, no, those are actually quite, quite valuable too. And again, most of them developed without anybody um, saying, oh, you know, we need a, a t-shirt factory here, or, oh, we need, uh, you know, to make these high-tech widgets there. It's all just letting it, letting it happen um, yeah. is, is critically important. Um, but you are going to be permanently a member of the remnant because yeah. the fundamental problem is, is that people, I, I just coming more and more around to this view that, that people who good, smart, serious people, I'm not saying that these are bad people, but if it's, it's sort of like how to, this perennial fallacy that you get of if only we could have a businessman as president. <laughs> because they know how to run a business right. that they can. And, and it's like, yeah, really good businessmen know how to run businesses really well. But the incentive structures of being a president are so different in terms of yeah. politics because of what's in it for the people around the table. Like, yeah. And you ever go board meeting, increased share price or increased profits is in everybody at the table's benefit. 
when you're at a cabinet table, those metrics don't apply. And yeah. um, and I just think that the, that we are going to be permanently yelling at the TV for the rest of our lives because most people want politics to be something that it isn't. Yeah, and they want. They, they like this idea that the president of the United States runs the economy, yeah. right? He, he draw, he's, it's the equivalent of driving a car and he's at the wheel and that there's a button in the White House that says create jobs. And, um, <laughs> and the best we can hope for is, is to, to like have people not pay that much attention to politics because all the really good stuff gets done when you can get politics out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I totally, I look, yeah, I mean, being a libertarian, I'm used to, I'm going to, I was, I was already destined for, for being, uh, in, you know, marginalized. Um, but, uh, yeah, there, there's two things you, you mentioned there that I think are really important. And the first is that, um, I think a lot of politicians and political actors apply what I would call a microeconomic view to a macro world. And, and what I mean by that is they, they think that you can run the economy like you run a business, which is just foolish uh, for so many reasons, because you can essentially control your organization, but you, the, you, you, and you, but you can't do that when, you, when it comes to the, the global economy, the national economy. There are just too many moving parts, there's too many factors, and there's too many things that that happen in response to your actions and the rest. And, and because of that, um, it, it requires a totally different mindset. Um, and in fact, um, you, you see it a lot. You see businessmen or stock pickers um, talk about, well, Trump's implementation of tariffs, for example, is going to be great for this company because it's going to increase the price of steel. But they don't then think about, well, actually, the higher prices of steel will depress demand, people will buy less steel, and that over uh, a year period, uh, those same steel industries that did benefit will now be hurt. And then, oh, by the way, there's going to be investment uncertainty because you injected politics and all that, so, oh, so forth and so on. So they don't ever think about that. And, and applying a kind of a micro view to a macro world is a, a big problem. Uh, and then I think the other thing that a lot of people fall into a trap doing is they they kind of discard their their principles, economic principles or whatever, because they think it's politically necessary. And like you said, voters want a president that pushes buttons and a president that runs the economy and the rest. And because of that, they try to think of ways to 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 have that be true, whether it's industrial. So, for example, we need more manufacturing jobs for whatever reason, or people in the mid industrial Midwest want us to at least to be up here to trying to create more manufacturing jobs and trying to boost that sector. Um, and because of that, they say, well, that, okay, so um, good luck selling free trade in the industrial Midwest, good luck selling free market policies, because those folks, they want this protectionism, industrial policy, whatever. And I think that mindset, again, runs into, it's just, it's, it's, so frustrating because it's essentially admitting that these policies aren't good on the merits, that they're there because there's this bottom-up groundswell for, you know, a, a, uh, an economic director president. Uh, when in reality, you know, I mean, do people really, do they really want that or do they just want to have a better quality of life, good living standards, that kind of thing? Um, and then they answer an occasional pool question about tariffs and, and 
you know, parrot whatever a political leader said. And so I, that's the other. So I think both of those are, are maybe insurmountable obstacles to my sanity. Um, yeah. So you mentioned the, I mean, it's something I talk about a lot on here. The, um, when you say uh, they think about macroeconomics in a microeconomic way, um, you know, that famous, one of my favorite things from Hayek is, is in the fatal conceit where he talks about the macrocosm and the microcosm and how in the microcosm, microcosmos, I think it actually is what he says, that our families are the microcosm, right? And that the rules of family life and affiliations and local affiliations and communities are just different, right? Yeah. Then the macrocosm, the macrocosm is the extended order of liberty. It's a contractual society. It's Gemeinschaft versus Gesellschaft, extended order is Gesellschaft, local communities, Gemeinschaft. And, um, and so when you're talking about like running a government, when you were saying in terms of like running a government, like a business, the other real big problem, I mean, business, at least running government, like a business is preferable to me as a, you know, as a libertarian three times a week, um, <laughs> than running government, like it's a family and you're the pater familias, right? <laughs> yeah. Where the, the, you're the father George Washington, we get to call father country for all sorts of reasons that are poetic and whatever. But the idea that the president is the dad of yeah. America is a deeply pernicious one. And it comes up all the time on left and right. And it's a, it is a, it is a, it is a different kind of micro cosmic yeah. thinking about the macrocosm that is really dangerous because that is the gateway drug. That, is, that was the argument for monarchy for about 12,000 years, right? Is that he's the, he's the, the, the father of the entire body politic. And, and at least when you're talking about running it like a business, you can use some numbers, right? You can have some yeah. arguments about math, but when it's these mystic cords of, of blood and soil crap, then yeah. that's impervious to math. You know, your, your calculators are, are useless against it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and look, I, I think you're, it's definitely, that is, yeah. If I have to choose between those two, then I'm certainly, uh, choosing the business. Um, right. It's just that the even the business uh, formulation runs into all sorts of problems. Um, you know, the the government's balance sheet is different than a business's balance sheet, for example. Um, but uh, and you can kind of people labor can be kind of widgets in the, in the mm -hmm. sense. Now, now I'm probably getting me in trouble. But the idea is, look, as a business owner, you can you can you can do those things, and and it'll generally produce the outcomes that you want by shifting these resources around. It just does not work that way in, in the broader macro uh, uh, sense, and particularly at the global sense. You know, the way that I've always kind of described it is it's like pushing on a balloon, right? You're going to push in one place and then another place is going to pop out, right? right. And, and you just can't, there's no way you can actually squeeze the whole thing together without, a, you know, of course it all exploding. And, and that's just, you just, there, it requires a humility to understand that, that you're going to push here and you're not going to know exactly what's going to pop out where. And right. um, if you don't have that humility, which let's face it, few politicians have um, and very few voters want, uh, it makes for bad policy. Yeah. And also another problem with the, the sort of the bad category error analogy of it all is that when you're the head of a business, everybody's working for you right. and you get to boss them around to a certain exactly. extent, right? Yeah. The president is not my boss. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, I don't right. work for him. I don't work, you know, it's like, and that's one of the things that just culturally drives me crazy about a lot of the Trumpists and now a lot of the Biden people. And then before that, the Obama people, they talk about my president as if it's like, you know, my fear, my leader, you know, my captain, my captain, eh, president, regardless of part, he's just not my captain. You know, right. I mean, he's like running one branch of one level of government. He's not, you know, my boss. And right. But that's that lizard brain stuff coming up again. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, people want simple, people want simple, simple solutions. Right. And uh, and it, it lends itself to bad policy. Yeah. And, and what you want is simple rules for complex society and get the hell out of the way. Yeah. Anyway. All right, Scott Lincecum, congratulations on your five-time appearance here. Thank you. Um, watch, uh, watch one of those important logistical supply chains because your gold jacket's on the way. Can't wait. Um, and uh, everybody, if they don't subscribe to Scott's uh, newsletter, which is 80% charts, 90% uh, libertarian economic stuff, and 10% nacho trutherism, yeah, uh, you're you're only hurting yourself, and and frankly, you're you're hurting the global GDP. True, true. Scott Lindsay, thank you for being here. Thank you, sir. All right, so Scott Lindsay has left the building. I really feel bad that I hadn't uh, prepped for his five time uh, fifth fifth appearance. That's that's just that's huge, um, you know. And it's gonna I mean, his speaking fees. They're probably gonna have to add like two three zeros to the end. Um, just because of that. And, um, but it's always good to have him back and it's good to have him and his capitalism newsletter at the dispatch. I highly recommend it if you're interested in any of these kinds of issues. Um, or if you just, you just really like charts because he's, um, you know, not since the English, what was it called? The chartist movement. Has there been someone more into charts and it's a completely different thing. But anyway, um, so that's it for today. And uh, thanks to Caleb, our producer, to Nick Pompella and to our intern, our new intern guy, Denton, who is lurking from the UK. Um, we will resume the tradition of having our interns make an appearance on the podcast um, at some point in part because um, I want everyone to hear how much he sounds like somebody you all know, um, but we'll keep the suspense just building. And other than that, uh, please come by the dispatch, sign up to be a member. Uh, great things are happening. Great things are coming. And um, we couldn't be where we are without all of you guys. And if just if the if 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 all the listeners of this podcast decided to crowdsource becoming full time members of uh, the dispatch. Um, my cousin's, uh, orbital death ray, um, would, um, become part of our, we could afford to be, have a timeshare with the, with the Jew laser, which is like really important. So anyway, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.